Hello out there. I'm Whitney. And I'm Will. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is episode 12, Committing Metrocities. Today we're going to talk about The Tick and Megamind, two superhero parody properties that may seem unrelated at first, save for their blue heroes or villains, as the case may be, but they have a lot of surprising links that we'll discuss in this episode. So in today's episode, we're back to talking about um, particular tropes of superhero stories. Uh, And in this case, we're looking at, I guess, the trope of superhero stories that are aware of tropes of superhero stories. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. So self-aware, metatextual stuff. And I know the very obvious example of this is Deadpool. And we will do an episode on Deadpool at some point, but... That is not what we're going to be talking about today. No, we are looking entirely outside the big two and their, you know, pantheon of superheroes. No, today we're going to be talking about uh, Megamind and the Tick. Not yeah. exactly the most traditional choices, but they're both very, very good and we like them a lot. Yeah, Megamind, the DreamWorks movie from a few years back. 2010 specifically, I think. And as well as The Tick, which is a much newer series on Amazon Prime Video, as well as, you know, it's been around in various other formats before. The character has been around for a while. Yeah. The only significant chunk of The Tick that we've read or seen was the new series, although we've read the free comic book day thing with The Tick a little while back. Yeah, yeah, which was fun. Very, all very absurd, which is very much in line with the series in terms of tone. Although the series made slightly more sense plot-wise than a lot of those adventures. But yeah, sure so basically, I mean, we don't really have a structure planned for this episode, unlike others where I have outlined them exhaustively beforehand. Yeah, so... so we're just going to, like, I guess, talk about whatever and hope it makes some amount of sense afterwards. So where do we want to start? Okay, should we define metatextuality first a little bit? Yeah, that might be a good idea. Can I talk about the parameters of how we're going into this? Yeah, so basically, metatextuality... Like, if you've read or watched anything to do with Deadpool, you know exactly what we mean by that. It's stuff that is self-referential. You know, you hear the term breaking the fourth wall all the time, which Deadpool does all the time. It's that sort of thing. A genre piece that knows exactly what genre it's in and works in and around tropes in a more self-aware manner. Yeah, and I would say Deadpool is kind of a different example than the others. If you're looking at Deadpool in comics or Deadpool in the movies, he is a character who basically knows that he's in a movie or knows that he's in a comic book and has a sort of medium awareness. And that's a form of metatextuality, I suppose. More directly breaking the fourth wall and addressing the audience, rather than the ways that the Tick and Megamind approach it. Um, because in those, yeah, it's like, the characters aren't talking about... Accidentally. They're, they're not yeah, like they're, they're aware of the fact that they're in this particular medium yeah. but it's, they it's are like aware the of writers the are winking at the audience about tropes but it's not the characters who are doing that yeah and this is i think something that i've noticed with both the tick and megamind the title characters in particular and in the case of megamind also some other characters basically seem to be aware of how superhero stories work yes definitely. and they both sort of act like they know how things are going to go because of how they expect these stories to pan out. 
Yeah, as and well with, as... with Roxanne Richie and Megamind, that manifests in a rather interesting way, and we can talk about that in a bit. Yeah. I just had this thought. But like in addition to expecting things to work out the way the genre conventions say, they also in some cases act to almost enforce the genre conventions. So we see this more often with The Tick as he tries to encourage um, the main character of Arthur into taking yeah, up superhero stuff more. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and no, we he should, has a lot of... We should probably say here that about. there will be spoilers for yeah. The Tick as well as Megamind going forward. Yeah, I mean, Megamind came out a while ago, so like... Yeah, but it's a deal, great movie, so if you haven't yeah. seen it, go see it. Yeah, and likewise with The Tick. I don't remember it getting a lot of mainstream media attention. I just don't remember seeing a lot about it on Twitter, but that's a damn shame because it's really, really good. And if you don't want spoilers, you should... Stop this episode now and get on Amazon Prime or meet up a friend who has it and watch it because it's really good. And it's a super quick watch too. 12 episodes, like 30 minutes each. It's not bad. I enjoyed The Tick, but I feel like you enjoyed it a lot more than I did. Uh, probably. Probably. I'm not sure why that is. Hmm. I didn't dislike it, but I don't think it was like super amazing. Haha. <laughs> I don't want to like talk down on The Tick at all because it's quite good, but... I feel like you are much more supportive of it. Maybe. I mean... Which is interesting. Um, yeah. And maybe as we go on, we'll kind of figure, figure out why that yeah. is. God, we said that at the same time. Destiny. Oh, God. Oh, man. So, you know, actually, talking about Destiny and all that stuff might actually be a good place to start because that's very much where Megamind starts out. What really piqued my interest at first about Megamind was that it was very obviously riffing off Superman's origin story, but, okay, to the best of my knowledge, there was no Superman archvillain who was also launched from some dying planet in space. Am I correct with that? I don't know. There might be stuff where, like, oh, it's an evil version of Superman launched from Krypton. But there's no iconic villain that's at all like that. Megamind has some tropes in common with characters like Lex Luthor or Brainiac, but the origin of both Megamind and Metro Man is very mm -hmm. clearly just a direct riff on Superman himself. Yeah. So in Megamind's voiceover in the very beginning, he says something about how his parents, before they sent him off in his little tiny baby spaceship, said he was destined for something, and he didn't quite hear that last word. And the interesting thing was that his course was set for this plush life on Earth or whatnot. And Metro Man was also watched from a dying planet the like the exact same time. And Metro Man actually knocked Megamind off course. So it wasn't nearly as clean cut as it was in Superman's, you know, normal origin story where baby lands pretty much exactly where he needs to be. No, there was some interference there. Yeah. Which is and one one. I think the thing. main purpose of that is to basically set Megamind right off the bat as a sympathetic character. You yeah, know, because even yeah. though he's been the bad guy in name, he's also been the victim of circumstance in some ways. Oh, definitely, definitely. And the fact that rather than launching into this rich family's house, that he gets launched into a prison yard and apparently, yeah. and apparently is just allowed to be raised by all the prisoners in the yeah, prison. Yeah, that's weird. But can we talk about where they land for a second? Because this is one really important divergence from the Superman origin story that I think the movie did this on purpose and like milks it for like what it's worth. 
Superman did not crash land in a mansion, unlike Metro Man. Superman fell onto a freaking farm in Kansas and had to grow up fairly, fairly blue collar, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's something we talked about back in the um, the Path of the Righteous Man episode. Yes, definitely, about definitely. About Superman's rural upbringing being a... Huge. Basically, one of the sources yeah. of his morality. Yeah, huge factor in his moral and ethical system. But whereas with Metro Man and Megamind, Metro Man, perhaps unintentionally, but nonetheless diverts Megamind from enjoying the same privilege that he himself comes to enjoy, it really seems like a direct commentary on privilege. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought yeah, about that. Yeah, and especially when you consider that villains are often coded for marginalization in some way. Most often, I think, queer-coded. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. And yeah, so that does even more to me to cast him as a sympathetic character because this rich white boy knocks a ship off course and robs him of the same sort of chances in life that he could have had had he landed in that mansion and we see this play out through their dual childhoods interestingly they go to the same school which i don't know is necessarily super realistic but I th- oh I yes because mega mind is so up on the super realism fair but so- realistically based on patterns of wealth and stuff like that i find it unlikely that rich boy and boy who landed in a prison and was adopted by a prison would go to the same school. I but mean... I see what they're trying to do with that. Cause we have this whole montage where Metro man is, Oh my God, such like a spoiled coddled rich boy and 100% adored by his entire class. And Megamind is just the class reject. So this dynamic of, you know, rich boy versus incredibly underprivileged boy keeps propagating itself through Metro Man's frankly asinine behavior. Yeah. I mean, I admittedly I think, as a child, but still. Yeah. I don't think Metro Man was a bully or anything. Uh, um, not he directly. Was, he was kind of a jerk. But yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think, think it graduated was, to straight up bullying. I would agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more just kids being more hurtful than they intend to be kind of thing. Yeah. I can see that. I don't know, I just keep thinking about how this really terrible treatment at the hands of specifically like Metro Man and the class full of his admirers, whatever. Megamind keeps getting screwed over by these people and that is what makes him originally decide to become some sort of criminal mastermind or whatever. I yeah, don't think the narrative- He be good at anything, so he'd be bad. He'd be really good at being bad. It yeah, yeah, and I think, it's, I think it's interesting that the way the movie is structured, I don't think that being raised in a prison was what turned him awful. It was specifically getting repeatedly and wholeheartedly screwed by this kid and this kid's legion of admirers. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, the prison, we do see some one-dimensional stuff with the inmates showing him a picture of the policeman being like, no, bad, That's showing him true. like That's the true. black and white striped shirt robber and being like, But decided yes. to... I think that was like when he was a baby even. Okay, okay. It shows like, okay, the prison is skewing his upbringing in this weird way. Yeah, but I think the more immediate catalyst is his treatment at the hands of Metro Man. Totally, totally, yeah. I don't so know. This the... feels like we're getting very in-depth on this 
very deliberately cartoonishly done origin story. <laughs> I mean, but I think yes, there's definitely value to it. But yeah, and I keep thinking about the ways in which the whole theme of destiny relates to that because I don't know, like Megamind, I guess, just starts to think that maybe he was just destined to be bad all along. Yeah. And that's like part of his major like villain origin story. And by the time that he really gets into the situation that they're in at the beginning of the movie when they're both adults, they're basically have both, I don't want to say resign themselves to it because at least Megamind at least seems to enjoy doing what he does. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But he sort of treats it as an inevitability at the beginning of the movie that he is the bad guy, Metro Man is the good guy. And as you see their confrontation with the observatory and stuff, the reporter... Roxanne Ritchie. Roxanne Ritchie was basically just totally jaded with the whole thing. Yeah, that particular exchange is very much a satire of the way in which superheroes can confront the same friggin' supervillains over and over and over and over and over again, which that trope definitely originated in... It had more political economic origins in the sense that, number one, I think the comics code had a huge effect on this. Like, when that came along, heroes were gonna be caught dead, pun intended, killing the villains because murder is bad. Ooh, ooh. And then, also, just... You need ongoing conflict to sell more comics and every yeah. like few years or so your core audience will have all aged out of comic books and a new crop of kids will be ready to read comic books and if you know your iconic villains aren't around for those new kids then who the heck are you going to sell comics to so it, it, that particular trope had very metatextual origins in and of itself yeah totally and oh my and- god god bless Roxanne she she is probably the most self-aware character in that movie. As close as anybody in that movie gets to like actually being Deadpool. Just in terms of knowing what the hell is up. Yeah, you know, I guess so. Yeah, she, she knows the script better than Megamind, actually. She's like... Yeah. The only time she's even remotely taken by surprise um, when he's like throwing all those horrible things at her. She's like, Spider is new. And Megamind is... Very obviously trying to play it off like that was part of his plan, but just <laughs> failing the entire time because he has no sense of composure. Yeah. And I love the back and forth between Mega Mind and Metro Man. Oh my god. Because it's just <laughs> the part The part where they just go to like they take their analogies like ridiculously far. He's like Metro Man is like justice is a non-corrosive metal and I don't know, Mega Mind's like, but metal can be Corroded by the heat, of, melted by the heat of revenge. Yeah, and he pronounces it like revenge instead of revenge. <laughs> and Metro Man goes, "It's revenge, and it's best served cold." But Mega Mind, like, of course, takes the analogy to even more ridiculous ends, and is like, "But it can easily be reheated in the microwave of evil." And you know what? Now I kind of want when I get a microwave for my new apartment, I want to like put like duct tape on the door and write microwave of evil on it. That just occurred to me. But I want to do that very badly. Anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. That was entirely my fault. Anyway, where were we? Anyway, yeah, I think everyone basically at that point, including Megamind and Metro Man, though, seems to be aware that this whole thing of Megamind has evil plan, Metro Man stops Megamind, everything's 
find happens again later is in large part understood by most people involved. Yeah, definitely. And Megamind seems to not particularly be bothered by it, at least at first. It's, it doesn't seem like he's letting himself get into a rut as far as the repetition goes. He seems to enjoy it just yeah. fine. Yeah, but that's The exactly... rest of the city seems to take it largely in stride at that point. Yeah, we don't get like horribly much about their reactions and stuff, I guess. Yeah. No, but yeah. like something I want to point out is that Megamind definitely enjoys the chase much more than the kill. He yeah. he enjoys the repetition. He enjoys the game. So, and that sort of repetition is exactly the sort of thing I was just reading about earlier. Remember that article I was reading before we started recording this? It was basically an article about Batman and the Joker and how they represent this sort of religious myth trope of the combat myth. And there are four parts to this myth, right? So in this myth, the hero and villain are supposed to represent like order and chaos, right? Sure. So step one, the entity of chaos arises and screws everything up. Step two, the hero arises to fight the agent of chaos. Step three, the hero defeats the agent of chaos. But that's only three steps. The hero won, right? There's a step four, and that is the hero has fixed things, but there's a sense that it's only temporary, that the entity of chaos might rise again. So you can see how that would apply to a lot of superhero stories just in general but i mean almost every superhero story basically just comes goes back to the or their origins in comic books you know yeah. because most of the villains are set up in such a way that they do keep coming back in one way or another yeah but my point with this is that the entire point of megamind like as a movie is that it shows what happens when the combat myth goes completely off the rails Everybody loses the friggin' script. Megamind loses the script after he wins because he's so used to this game that he enjoys, the cat and mouse play, that and he has no idea what the hell happens afterwards. He has no plans for what to do with Metro City or Metrocity, as he pronounces it, afterwards because the chase is all that there is for him. And Metro Man himself is the one who basically recognizes the script and throws it away. Yes, he, exactly. And this is kind of jumping around in terms of when it happens. Yeah, we're jumping movie, which is when it's rather revealed far forward movie, in the movie. But, yeah. you know, he realizes basically that he is... Trapped in this cycle of violence, basically. Yeah, which he doesn't really care about, you know, his... Yeah. He said that his heart wasn't in it or anything. And God, we actually get this whole sequence of him doing all these things at super speed <laughs> while it looks like he was just trapped in the dome. And at that point, it's just part of the humor is that it just drives home how totally and utterly easily Metro Man could be a Megamind if he really wanted to. Yeah. Like, beat but, him for good. Yeah. Like, part of it's like he doesn't want to kill Megamind, and part of it's just he doesn't care enough at that yeah, point Yeah, he's just like it. phoning it in. Like he literally is going at super speed and he goes into the hideout where Megamind is and is just kind of strolling around and then he just leaves. Yeah. And side note, can we talk very briefly about how hilarious the reveal of Metro Man is in the actual movie? 
Megamind and Roxanne go to find some sort of hideout decked out with Metro Man memorabilia and stuff like that, but they don't think anybody's home. And then in the foreground, they're just like examining something and talking. And then in the background, rather blurry, you see Metro, an unshaven Metro Man come into the room and just like go, oh shit, people are here. And he casually like tries to sneak out again. That's what he's I think that like more casual reveal of him being in the background, like almost a blink and you miss it type thing. That is so much funnier than like a big dramatic reveal. I really appreciated that on, I don't know, a filmmaking level. Yeah, yeah. that was pretty good. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. So I think the idea there is just that you call it the cycle of violence. And the things that are usually described as the cycle of violence are a little more destructive than this, but... This is a cartoon. At least, so. yeah. But I just mean, like, nobody's really ending up getting hurt in all this yeah. besides, well, like, disruption of property. Yes and no. Because, you know what? Let's talk about Hal a little bit. The, you know, person who ends up being the actual villain of the movie. Spoiler, sorry. It's interesting to me that when Megamind realizes that his life is completely without meaning anymore because he doesn't have a hero to fight, because again, he enjoyed the chase more than the kill, his big grand plan to get everything back to the way it was again is to create a hero for him to fight. He's trying to reestablish the script that he's been missing for so long. But then, I don't know, it's like, yes, the final confrontation between Megamind and Hal, aka the hero turned villain Titan, it does fall back into the same sort of script that Megamind is missing. So in a way, Megamind does kind of get what he wants, even though he realizes he's got more hero in him than he wanted to admit at first. But what I think is most interesting about Hal as a villain, is that he's very much a friend zone dude bro, in a way. Yeah. What do, I, what do I mean, in a way? It is very explicit that Hal is so very, I wouldn't say necessarily primarily motivated, but highly motivated to become a villain and wreck the city because specifically Roxanne did not return his affections. Like he says as much multiple times and it has been, it was established before Megamind injected him with like hero soup and turned him into this beefed up dude that he was kind of a creeper. He was a creeper. Yeah. So I don't know. I had, it had been a while since I'd seen that movie and I had completely forgotten about that part or maybe the, Hmm. Not even subtext had just flown over my head entirely. But I think it was a really interesting choice to make the villain of this movie, the real villain, explicitly friend-zoned and dubro and misogynist, entitled. Yeah, that's... I don't know. I would have to think more about how this movie constructs masculinity in various ways. That's something, that's an angle I hadn't considered until like two seconds ago. Yeah, it would be a really interesting to kind of examine it through the lens of performative masculinity. Yeah, definitely. Just because when you consider Megamind as being like kind of queer coded too, as most villains are. There's definitely some of that. I'm just thinking like largely how even Megamind and Metro Man in the beginning of the movie are playing these two masculine roles that are kind of both expected of them, even if it's not really what their personalities in the end are. Oh, seem that's to so be true. Ideally suited oh my for. God. 
Yeah. You know, and then only once they're able to break out of that performative thing, do they really find fulfillment in doing, not necessarily like based in masculinity or otherwise, but just based on... Yeah, Metro Man discovers music and he's terrible at it, but he discovers it. Yeah, but just based on what they choose to do rather than the things that society kind of expects of them. Yeah, exactly. And Hal never really learns that lesson. Well, I think the thing is, like, Hal never really cares what anyone else expects him to do or wants him to do because he He... is ultimately incredibly selfish and is only ever does any of the things that he does for anyone but himself. Yeah, although there's there's still absolutely a gendered component to the acts he commits when he's, you know, all bulked up and going full super villain. Yeah. Like yeah. tying Roxanne to the top of the tower or whatever, like tar- specifically targeting her. That's Yeah, there's uh, definitely a she, lot of he, he terrorizes her pretty pretty big time. And that's yeah, it's so interesting to me that the movie like really specifically indicts that. That's mm, one of the things yeah, that stuck yeah. out the most to me. Yeah, and it was interesting that Metro Man and Roxanne never had any sort of relationship or anything. It was... Yeah, it did I don't even know if I'd call it, like, friendship. I'm not sure how well they really even knew each other outside of... Yeah, because Megabyte was pretending to be some random dude named Bernard for the majority of his interactions with her. Okay, so... And actually, okay... That has... Sorry, what were you going to say? That was a lot of Megamind stuff about how both Metro Man and Megamind are basically just playing along with the hero and villain roles that yeah. basically the society expects of them and neither of them really have their hearts in it. Yeah, that the genre expects of them in a yeah. more metatextual sense. Totally, totally. Yeah. The Tick takes something of a different approach yeah. in how the Tick is filling the genre expected superhero role very very joyfully willfully. almost yeah. yes he yeah. wants to be it almost doesn't feel like he wants to be the hero so much as he just has to be the hero and sees no other way that he could be even yeah well because i mean we don't we don't know who the hell the tick is the tick yeah, doesn't this know is, who the hell the tick is yeah has, yeah and that's not really resolved at that, all yeah that, that was he has something... no memory of who he is or what he is or anything like that. Sorry, yeah, that shit. was something I was wondering about because I haven't read enough of the comics to know that it, if there is a established origin story for the Tick. But in the show, he basically just shows up and there's never any explanation for his powers or what he can do or what motivates him. Well, I mean, what motivates him? We get plenty I mean, of that. Yes, what motivates him in terms of just him wanting to follow destiny and yeah. be a hero, hero and all that. But we never really find out why he feels the need to fill that role or what is the kind of driving force behind his particular eccentric heroism. Yeah. Yeah. So while the Tick himself is basically this guy out of the blue who... <laughs> out of the blue. That was great. Sorry. Anyway. Yes. Go on. Go on. He monologues about destiny and encourages people to be heroic and all that. Yeah, no, he firmly believes in destiny and, like, set paths for people, whereas that is not the core message of Megamind when all is said and done. Like, Megamind 
the, as a movie, believes much more in free will than The Tick does, which I think is such an interesting contrast. Yeah. At least as much as like The Tick as a person. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, Arthur comes around to what The Tick believes. So that's believing in destiny and sort of ineffable events or whatever. Like, that's very much the core ethos of the show. Yeah, yeah. Arthur himself is... The point, the main character, much more of the main character than the tick, I think. Oh, absolutely. But he gets the very classical, like, refusal of the call when the tick is like, here, you should put on this suit for whatever It is perfectly sized for your tiny body. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, even before the tick comes comes along, Arthur is already trying to do his own thing of exposing the terror that he's confident is still around. Yeah, and he has a very personal reason for doing so. Yeah, but it shows that he's not necessarily just some entirely ordinary dude who suddenly goes down that rabbit hole, but he's, he's basically already taken a certain amount of responsibility onto himself, but he's reluctant at first to take on any more, I guess. Yeah, and from the beginning, even though he spent so much time and effort trying to prove that this big arch-villain, the Terror, was still alive, his plan the whole time was just to prove that the dude was alive so that the proper authorities and or superheroes could take care of it. Like, he never wanted to stop the Terror himself, despite the fact that, honestly, he would have every right to kick the Terror to the ground, just because the Terror is very much the cause of his particular childhood trauma and subsequent mental illness and stuff like that. So side note, can we talk about, I just want to briefly say that at least from my perspective, this show actually handles mental illness really well. There's a lot of sympathy towards Arthur and his big childhood trauma, i.e. seeing his father killed in like almost the same moment as a premier team of five superheroes and the terror subsequently like coming over to tiny Arthur and scaring the crap out of him. The show feels a lot for him. That's yeah. his trauma is never dismissed or belittled in any way. And they don't shy away from showing the ripple effects that that's had on his psyche. And they also, there's a moment in, I think the third or fourth episode fairly early on where Arthur is even questioning that the tick actually exists or whether it's something that he's hallucinating because apparently yeah. he's had hallucinations and this was something, before. Yeah, this is something that I kind of saw them setting up. They're not subtle about it at first where for the first few episodes, the tick is only ever in the scene with Arthur and doesn't interact with anyone else. Well, no, he does though. Don't they show him destroying that warehouse? They show him destroying that one warehouse, but... They only ever show it as kind of a flashback of the tick describing what he did. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. For a little while, at least, there's no concrete thing showing that the tick is a real thing and not just something Arthur is hallucinating. And there's a few scenes where as soon as somebody else shows up, the tick has disappeared, which makes it kind of set up in that direction. And then they go on to very clearly disprove that there is a scene where arthur is talking to his sister dot who by the way is my favorite character in the entire show dot everest is amazing and i love her she's great she's wonderful and arthur is very explicitly 
doubting his own perceptions. He like actually asks himself, oh my God, am I hallucinating this big blue jerk or whatever? Not in so many words, but... And where I feel like other shows would play with that, like, oh my God, does he really see the tick or not? Where I feel like a lot of other shows would draw that period of questioning out and use it as an extended plot device of sorts. Dot is just immediately like, no, I see him. He's right there. I don't know. I Admittedly, I haven't watched Legion, but that very much feels like sort of a response to the ways in which the main character's like mental illness on Legion kind of shapes the entire show. Again, admittedly, I haven't watched the show, so I don't know how they approach that, but I don't know. It feels more than anything like a response to that to me. Yeah, I haven't seen the Le- I haven't seen Legion either. I don't know how much that might relate. I do think it's interesting though that after those first few episodes, once it's established that the tick exists and they go a few more episodes, but it very quickly Arthur's mental illnesses and trauma is it's not like it's just brushed under the rug or anything, but it's no longer a central plot device for the show. There's no more of Dot trying to help Arthur deal with his like mental illness issues once it's established that the tick is real and that there's some evil business plan going on. Yeah. And to a degree, I think that's because the show, the events of the show happen in such a compressed time frame. That's almost. true, yeah. So, I can see that being part of the culture. Yeah. yeah. But so along the lines of how the show portrays Arthur, I kind of, I want to talk about how that feeds into how the show sort of treats masculinity. It's kind of similar to, there's a similar sort of dichotomy present in this show to what we see in Megamind. Specifically, Arthur is not very stereotypically masculine at all. Yeah. Whereas Overkill, who we find out later is the former Flag 5 hero straight shooter, is very much, you know, a send-up of the dark and brooding Batman-type trope. Or not whatnot. even Batman. He is... Punisher, more like, I think? Absolutely. He is absolutely a pastiche, I guess you could say, of the Punisher. Yeah. The He's... Punisher and more generally the sort of gritty reboot concept. Yeah, definitely. Although they they subvert that in... I'm thinking of like one moment in particular when Overkill slash just like straight up admits that he is uncomfortable touching people because he has trust, trust issues. He just like comes right out with that, which I don't think he'd really catch the Punisher doing that. But if they were playing yeah, that the character... Punisher tra- does not... Yeah. The Punisher, I think, is aware that he's... Not really, but he wouldn't be frank mentally about it. Well, but or he yeah. would be frank because his name is Frank. That was completely unintended. Oops. But but the Punisher would not be like you know, I have trust issues unless it says some gritty badass declaration. Yeah, and if they were playing the trope straight in the Tick, then Overkill would have never admitted that. But he straight up was like, "Hey, I got issues." Which is kind of refreshing. I think, like, they do some really interesting things with. Yeah, and the show itself just isn't afraid to show that Overkill is. that he's not evil, really. He is violent and frightening, especially at the beginning, and starts out in sort of an antagonistic role, but he's. Mm -hmm. ends up being much more of an ally to the characters than an enemy, but he also. Oh, absolutely. And that's also as he 
he doesn't give up killing, but he is willing and able to go without it to go along with the Tick and Arthur. Yeah. And that sort of change also, it seems to make him a little more stable as he stops wearing the mask and everything. Um, yeah, but it also, yeah, you're right. The very Punisher-like mask. Yeah, but I think said, it's also Lord. a matter of the show showing that very explicitly that he is not a mentally healthy person. Yeah, in a definitely. way, in a way that I think that definitely does happen with characters like the Punisher. I don't think anyone's ever suggested the Punisher is a sane or reasonable person, but it's a little more overt about it, I think, than mm-hmm. you usually get. Yeah, and yeah, I guess as far as metatextuality goes, Overkill almost follows a. It's almost like well, the Tick kind of believes everything to be in line with the classical um, superhero stories overkill kind of expects things to be more of the gritty uh yeah they're sort of working in two different genres almost yeah and in the end the tick is the genre that the yeah his vision of how things should come to pass is the one that triumphs ideologically in the end yeah yeah which i think is interesting it almost feels like the show gets a lot less dark slash gruesome as it goes on. Not that it was very say. gruesome to begin with. I wouldn't say gruesome necessarily, but there's a lot of trauma and yeah, yeah, bad you're stuff right. It's going dark on in, that in the sense. first few seasons. Yeah. In the first few episodes, I mean. Mm, yeah. I hope it got some more seasons. But yeah. yeah I thought yeah. that was interesting. And also how yeah. the villains in The Tick have some degree of metatextuality going on, but it's sort of a different thing. How so? Like... I don't know. I think there's a lot to unpack with the terror and how things end up playing out with him and his plans. Mm-hmm. But it feels almost like he's deliberately invoking a lot of the supervillain tropes in his... Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is the way that he expected Miss Lint to kill at the Osiris and take over th- that gang. Was it... No, his name wasn't Osiris. It was Ramses. Ramses. Right. You know expecting Lint to kill the Egyptian guy and take over his gang. And by Egyptian guy, I mean I was, white guy who was just yeah, appropriating his Egyptian iconography. I was going to say, that was definitely just a textbook case of appropriation. But yeah, you're kind of right about that. And yeah. also, he's just, but at the, the terror time, is just not subtle at all. He has this ship shaped like a giant T that is definitely not aerodynamically suited to air travel at all. It's, and he wears this... He, his helmet, the chainmail helmet he wears, it's has this sort of T-cutout shape. It's kind of like Magneto's, but at the same time, it reminds me of a very particular type of armor. And I was trying to find out what type of armor it was before we started recording, and I still don't know. I thought it was Crusader armor. I was wrong. I have no idea what it is. Hmm. Yeah, and one of the other things I noticed about the tick, which struck me as interesting, and I'm not sure if this is necessarily a metatextual thing, but almost all of the villains are kind of viscerally gross in some way. Wow. Yeah, God, you're right. Like, and this is especially apparent with the terror and to a lesser extent, uh, Miss Lint. Yeah, um, yeah. Where the terror is this old, scarred guy who... Played by Jackie Earl Haley in top form. Like, so good. Yeah, yeah. You know, he ripped out all his teeth to fake his death and he's got this gross-ass, like, metal teeth and these 
gross yellow eyes and his face is all wrinkly and deformed. Yeah, honestly, his face kind of looks like Wade Wilson's in Dead- in like the Deadpool movies. They yeah, there's kinda, some parallels they there. They look yeah. kind of similar. Yeah, and even um, Miss Lint, uh, who has electricity powers and static electricity causes dust and lint to constantly accumulate on her until she gets those like wristbandy things. And so she's got this gross accumulation of dust slowly building up around her constantly in the first several episodes. Oh my god, yeah. And she has this fake eye. Her eye is messed up and she has this admittedly cool looking lightning bolt scar. Oh, but there's so also cool. But there's also several scenes where you see her messing with putting a fake eye thing into her eye and it's Yeah, I couldn't watch gross. those. I was kind of squeamish about that. Yeah, and the one point where a piece of dust goes into her fake eye and Arthur is like staring at it and she's like, what are you staring at? Oh my god, yes. Oh, that was so unsettling. Yeah, god, you're right. That was not something I had noticed before. Yeah. I guess it's It's like... less the case with Ramses, who's just this... He's a minor hench villain of sorts. Pretty much, yeah. Also, I think I just made up the word hench villain, but I love it. Yeah, he's like, I don't know, speed bump. Mm-hmm. And is doesn't necessarily fall into that trope. Yeah, although he has that one really funny exchange with Miss Lynch very early on where he points out that she was the only member of his crew who didn't get the culturally appropriative under-eye tattoo. Oh, yeah, and yeah. That he's was, like, he's like branding another, is important. That's another interesting metatextual thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And actually, because he's got this whole pyramid motif going on and yeah. Miss Lynch is not into that at all. No, exactly. And that's actually, I think, another sort of point of similarity between the Tick and Megamind. Because do you remember when Megamind goes to confront Hal? And he just... Oh, my God. It's this fantastic scene. He just comes in with this army of, like, glowing megabots or whatever he calls them. I don't remember. And they, they assemble in this big light show, like the shape of his face or whatever. And Hal slash Titan, he's in costume then, goes like... I don't remember the exact exchange. It's something like, what have you got that I don't? It's or not like, those words, but something like that. Yeah. And the light show version of Megamind's face opens its mouth and sticks its tongue out. And the actual Megamind comes like rolling out on his tongue and goes, presentation. And it's so good. Oh, those, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Those two movies really... No, movies. Those... These two things. These two things, yes. <laughs> Not the most descriptive word, but it'll do. They have a really keen awareness of style and presentation in that sense. And I'm not quite sure what to make of that. That's, some, that's a connection that just occurred to me, but I yeah. think it's really interesting nonetheless. I, mean, I think it's another the... point in which they're both very self-aware and the writers definitely knew what TF they were doing. Yeah, it's basically like the only... I don't want to say the only difference, but the big difference between a mundane crook and the supervillain is some kind of ostentatious presentation in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And yeah. man, there's actually like that interesting bit at the end of The Tick where Lint is just yelling at the terror about how they could have been just stealing stuff and actually Doing making stuff a, profit, a profit, you yeah. know? And that's when it sort of is revealed that none of what the terror's doing is useful to anyone no it just not it even doesn't himself. make any sense like he wants to kill superior why 
because I mean, that's what maybe out of some super villains want to do kill yeah. the superhero and maybe it's like, out of some particular kind of revenge like superior stopping previous plans but yeah he's or not attempting... not being a hindrance to future nonsensical plans yeah it kind of reminds they me don't, of they, they don't really dive into it at all at the no? end but it's sort of arthur kind of talks about it too how the terror is just doing random random crap, crap without really having a fully thought through end goal almost yeah and that's a way in which he reminds me of megamind because we just talked about megamind having no idea what the heck happens after he actually you know defeats the superhero he hasn't thought past that so i feel like that might be i don't know is there a sort of meta commentary to be made there on perhaps a lack of concrete characterization for supervillains or perhaps a commentary on do they seem one-dimensional often because their I mean, only I real goal is certainly to... that a lot of supervillains are incredibly one-dimensional hmm. um, and there's definitely some amount of them that aren't i think that's just inevitable supervillains because most of them aren't going to get the same amount of development as the heroes get because you can really only get like the heroes are always going to be much more developed characters, basically. Because of genre reasons and stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. the main character usually gets the most character development of anybody. But it's also interesting that the Megamind and the Terror are both really developed characters, but their goals are... Nebulous even to them? I don't know. The Terror's goals seem like they aren't really explored fully in the show, at least in the first season. And yeah. maybe that's deliberate, Could some be. commentary on how he's just crazy and doesn't matter what he wants. But he has that crack when like Arthur's confronting him at the very end about, I wasn't trying to take over the world, I was trying to take it back. Like, what is he talking about? What does that mean? That doesn't make any sense with what we know although, about him and Superior and anything else. Yeah, although to be fair, he's not the only character in the show who has nonsense monologues. The Tick is the worst offender there, or... Worst, I mean best, because his monologues are amazing. The Tick's but... monologues are perfectly sensible. <laughs> no, but what I wanted to say, this is another thing that just occurred to me. In the sense that his origins are formless, his goals are nebulous besides, you know, screw everything up. He's so very much like the Joker. The Terror is so very much like the Joker in that respect. I guess so, yeah. And... Yeah, and it's almost as it if, almost like... It almost feels like the tick is just the flip side of the same coin, at least as far as the show goes huh, so far. Because, you know, the terror just shows up and wants bad shit to happen for reasons that presumably exist somewhere but aren't ever really defined or explored. And the tick just kind of shows up and wants to do heroism things for reasons that at least in the first season, aren't really defined or explored beyond very nebulous senses of destiny and righteousness and whatnot. Yeah. And so because both the Tick and the Terror, and in a lot of ways Superion as well... Yeah, that's the other guy. really never explored or discussed. We get a brief flash that Superion was an alien who... Yeah, very, very blatantly a send-up of Superman. Yeah, but both the Tick and the Terror just show up, at least as far as the show ever shows us, and start 
doing bad or doing good, respectively. And that almost feels like it could be a take on how a lot of superhero and supervillain motivations aren't always very well fleshed out. Obviously, you get it with some heroes, and we've talked about that before in the Path of the Righteous Man episode. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there is certainly something to be said about there definitely are a lot of superheroes out there whose reasons for doing good or evil aren't necessarily... Elaborated upon in the most detailed of manners. Yeah, I mean, some of them are token reasons that aren't really important, and some of them don't really have any realistic reason for it at all. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's, <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, as well, as long as the character at that point is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think the tick is interesting, even as just a parody or pastiche of that character archetype. <laughs> and I think there's something to be said for uh, characters that can stand without necessarily having a backstory to them. Hmm. Yeah. It's a thought. But of course, I think for most characters to be uh, someone that the audience can more directly relate to, they would have to have some backstory like that. I don't know. I don't necessarily have a specific conclusion I'm going to, but I'm kind of spitballing <laughs> off of no, that's fair. those concepts. Yeah. The podcast is titled Yelling About Superheroes, not composing elaborate essays on an impromptu basis about superheroes. Rambling about superheroes. <laughs> Very much so. I mean, we could have titled the podcast that. Anyway, Too yeah. Too late for that. But anyways. Speaking speaking of monologues. Oh my god. Okay, yeah. If for no other reason, you should watch this show because The Tick has monologues at the very I think, beginning and or ending of every episode. Yeah. That... Yeah are borderline nonsensical at times, but are also incredibly genre savvy and just like culturally savvy in a lot of ways. I don't remember a ton of specifics about a lot of them. There are two specific moments that I remember from two separate monologues. In one, he's talking about, you know, destiny again, and he talks about being thrust upon by greatness. And I don't know, that made me laugh because I'm a huge Shakespeare buff and... It's a reference to a line from Twelfth Night, right? You've heard it, heard it before. Surely, you know, some are born great, some achieve greatness, others have greatness thrust upon them. I've heard the line. I didn't know it was from that. Yeah. Cool. It's a dick joke. It is 100% a dick joke in context. It's so great. So, it's so now you understand. I mean, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, that just had me snickering a lot because that was totally on purpose. But... By far the best moment in any one of his monologues. And if you haven't watched the show, I would really prefer you pause the episode right here and watch it yourself so you can experience this glorious pun. It's in the for first yourself. episode, right? Yes, the very tail end of the first episode. So you wouldn't have to watch much. But. Okay, so I assume you're back now and you've um, seen the pun and I can geek out about it. I mean, he kind of talks about a superhero's motivations in that monologue, even if it's in the vaguest and grandest of terms. He talks about, you know, like, that's where you get up in the morning, to win the elixir and save the day or whatever. What elixir he's talking about, he never makes clear. That's what I meant by borderline nonsensical. But he also refers to, and I quote... It's a metaphor. (laughs) True. 
He also refers to, and I quote, going mono a mono myth with the darkness. I, I swore that pun was like tailor-made for the two of us. Did, I forget, did we talk about monomyths in the Righteous Man episode? I don't know, it's been a while I since I've listened to that one. I don't yet. remember if we did by name, but I feel like we couldn't have done the episode without at least discussing Probably. it. Uh, but in case you didn't listen to that one, very briefly, the monomyth is a sort of particular cultural hero archetype. And the American version of this monomyth has very heavily informed the character of the superhero, Lang and Trimble, Jeffrey Lang and Patrick Trimble, I believe. They wrote an article about it. I believe they wrote a whole book about it. So read that or like look that up. I know it's on Wikipedia. So yeah, that's why, oh my God. So that, that monologue, I believe in its entirety, was in the original pilot for The Tick that first appeared on Amazon Prime like sometime last year. And that was what I first watched. And I was like falling out of my seat laughing when I saw that. I was like watching it with my family and nobody else was gonna get that joke. So maybe like my dad, cause my dad's pretty smart. But I was just like, I feel so seen by this pun. This pun feels so completely made for me. It was a fantastic moment. So if that didn't sell you on the show, I don't know what will. Yeah, and I do enjoy the extended metaphors that he goes on with most of those episodes. Yeah, that's most another That's another point of like commonality between the tick and Megamind. I wish I had more specific examples. I wish I had time to look these up, but they both play with language in such interesting ways. They take metaphors beyond their logical stopping points. Yeah. I think make weird, absurd jokes all the time. Yeah. That might be something that's drawn from more like classical golden age or silver age superheroes to some extent, Hmm. or at least the cultural image of them. Huh? I don't know how much it might've actually happened, but it feels like something that might be being drawn from old uh, superhero stories in some way. That's really interesting. Of like heroic monologues and metaphors appearing therein. Mm -hmm. But I'm not actually sure how much of that might just be like the product of whatever the phrase is when people have always kind of assumed that something existed in a particular thing, whether it was actually there in the first place or not. Oh God, I should know what that is. It's not coming to me. Yeah, but either way, I feel like there's a lot of superhero parodies that have similar inspirational metaphors drawn out to the point of ridiculousness. Or alternatively, you know, The Incredibles. Oh, you sly dog, you caught me monologuing! Side note, I'm very excited for The Incredibles too. Yeah, so I think that about wraps up our discussion for this week. Yeah, we might revisit this later. Yeah, there's a lot of superhero parodies out there. And we're definitely doing more episodes on specific parodies, like Deadpool, like we mentioned, but not only that either, I think. But yeah, yeah, those are forthcoming at some point. Yeah, I think just because the genre itself is so recognizable and in a lot of ways inherently ridiculous. Yes, definitely. It really lends itself to parody and pastiche in very recognizable ways, just because of how iconic so many of these characters are and yeah, really definitely. how silly a lot of them are in good ways. Yeah, in for my sure. opinion, but yeah, still definitely silly. So we'll definitely be revisiting the topics of metatextuality and and parody. And all that yeah, and definitely. Stories in the future. Yeah, yeah, there are plenty of parodies out there for us to talk about. So yeah, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave, rate us, leave us a review, whatnot. We really appreciate it. 
And see you guys next time. Tell your friends. Bye. That's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at yellinabtsupers. Or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling-about-superheroes. You can also visit Whitney's blog at whitneythompson.wordpress.com, where we post our reading lists for each episode. We're now on iTunes, which is exciting, so if you're an iTunes listener, don't forget to subscribe there, and please rate the show and leave us a review. It'll help us in store rankings, and we always love feedback. We're also on Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente. You can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.